What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 36, The White Chapel, in which the second ruler of Dynasty 12, Senusaret I, begins a lavish building program up and down the Nile Valley, enhancing many important sites with monuments that survive even today. Unless they are associated with cemeteries, we know surprisingly little about Egyptian temple complexes before the Middle Kingdom. A few scattered foundations survive, but by and large, Egyptologists working in the pre-dynastic and Old Kingdom areas are forced to work primarily from cult centres connected with cemeteries and pyramids. This changes with the reign of Senusaret I, in which at least two significant monuments were established that survive even to this day. More importantly, these are temple structures associated with actual settlements, rather than tombs. If you know anything about ancient Egypt, I'd wager you've heard of the Temple of Karnak. It is the second largest temple complex in the world after Angkor Wat and those two temples are separated by nearly 3,000 years. Up until the early 12th century of our own time, the Temple of Karnak was the largest complex of religious structures on the planet. How did it begin? Well, this is a broad question, and Egyptologists don't have the answers just yet. For one thing, the ancient city of Thebes is still buried under the modern city of Luxor, And for another, the temple was probably begun in an area that is now beneath the Nile River. Luc Gabold of the French Research Centre has excavated in Karnak for a number of years, and he determined that the Nile River has shifted course noticeably between the late 3rd millennium BCE, or the Old Kingdom, and the New Kingdom when Karnak became truly enormous. So any temple begun before Senusaret I was likely buried under Nile mud, and archaeologists will need to dig much deeper and in more out-of-the-way places to find these earlier structures. For the time being, Senusaret I is the earliest known king to commission a royal temple at Karnak, and what a temple it was. The White Chapel of Senusaret I was constructed of white limestone and its carvings are exquisite. Delicate portrayals of the king 
before various deities convey the solemn piety of the structure and also a great sense of care. Inside the building, four small holes in the floor suggest that originally a canopy was held up by four poles. This canopy would shield the king from view as he sat enthroned in the centre of the chapel, receiving the adoration and submission of his elite courtiers outside. The chapel was built on a raised platform to protect the inscriptions from damage. Two ramps led up to it, one on the north face and one on the south. These ramps were probably in place to make it easy for a small statue of the god Amun, one of Thebes' patron deities, to be carried into and out of the chapel. It is also possible that statues of the king were carried in and out after Sinusaret died, but there is not quite a consensus yet among the academic community. The White Chapel is a beautiful little monument, and yet its existence was entirely unknown until the 1920s, at a time when worldwide attention was fixed on the slow clearance of the tomb of Tutankhamun, a French Egyptologist named Henri Chevrier was making a careful survey and analysis of Karnak Temple. Chevrier's employer, the director of Egyptian antiquities, had ordered him to document and preserve the third pylon at Karnak, which was built during the 18th dynasty under the orders of Amunhotep III. Chevrier set to work, but soon realised that conserving this pylon was a bigger task than expected. To save the monument, it would have to be carefully deconstructed, strengthened, and put back together with reinforcing materials. As builders accessed the inner core of the pylon, block upon block of limestone began to emerge. By the time Chevrier's team had them all clear, over 950 blocks had been collected and catalogued. These blocks came from more than one structure, but over many years of careful analysis and work, Chevrier was able to reconstruct the White Chapel. Lo and behold, Senusaret's monument had been restored to its original glory. It is unclear exactly where the chapel stood in its heyday, but today it is located within Karnak's open-air museum, a large space within the precinct, holding thousands of beautiful monuments and artefacts. Now, the chapel had been deconstructed during the reign of Amunhotep III, along with a small structure built by Amunhotep I. We'll get to that one later. If you're wondering why Amunhotep III would demolish the structure of a predecessor, well, it may surprise you to learn that Egyptian rulers did this all the time. Although the dynastic history of Egypt was remarkably stable, this didn't stop kings from wanting to outdo one another, nor did it mean that if a new building project was commissioned, and someone's older monument happened to be in the way, that the Egyptians wouldn't just take it down. Of course, they did this reverently. After all, the chapel was dismantled carefully, and its blocks placed neatly into the core of the pylon. This wasn't mindless destruction, or simple reappropriation. The blocks of Senusaret I had value, both symbolic and magical. Placing them within the third pylon gave Amunhotep's contributions to Karnak greater vitality and magic 
than might otherwise have been the case. Sure, it involved deconstructing a beautiful monument, but if the blocks themselves were preserved, then really, it was no harm, no foul. So, Sanusaret's chapel has had an interesting life. Having spent two and a half thousand years hidden within the monument of Amunhotep III, it finally re-emerged to a place in the sun. If you ever visit Egypt, and Luxor specifically, I suggest you hunt out the White Chapel, because it truly is one of the more beautiful structures in the entire Karnak area. Senusaret's other monuments at Karnak included a large courtyard temple, 38 metres by 38 metres, and 6 metres high. Most of the space was an open courtyard, but at the western end was a portico of columns, where statues of the king as Osiris were erected. This temple thus functioned in part as a glorification of the god Amun, and of Senusaret in the afterlife, when he would assume the responsibilities of Osiris as king of the underworld. This temple is now lost, only fragments remain. Where it once stood is a large open plaza, through which tourists wander, oblivious to the hidden presence of Senusaret's great contribution. Academic reconstructions of the temple, based on the excavations that have been conducted in the area, show it as an enclosed space, housing the portico and sanctuary. Around the general area, Senusaret also commissioned a mud-brick wall, of which only the faintest traces survive. But in antiquity, the temple was a magnificent structure, and it survived at least until the 18th dynasty, when parts of it were removed by Amunhotep I, and then by Hatshepsut. But the temple itself may have actually survived well into the 4th century, when the abolition of non-monotheistic religions by Emperor Theodosius I meant that the temple had to be closed. By this point, it can't have been much more than an unstable ruin, and locals soon dismantled it in order to use the stone for local building projects. So the Amun Temple of Senusaret I survived longer than the White Chapel, but this was ironically the cause of its destruction. Since the White Chapel was hidden away, buried within the pylons of Amunhotep III, locals would not trouble it, and it survived to the modern era. By contrast, the splendid and visible monument to Amun was exposed and ripe for the picking. Now, Senusaret did not focus all his attention on Karnak. Building projects were begun up and down the Nile Valley, from Elephantine in the south to Heliopolis in the north near Memphis. At Elephantine, the ancient temple of Satet was renewed in limestone. While it had been a small, unglamorous structure during the Old Kingdom and First Intermediate period, Senusaret turned it into a major local shrine. Satet was an incredibly ancient deity, whose chapel had existed at Elephantine since the very early years of the Old Kingdom. Huni of Dynasty III had erected a small ceremonial step pyramid at the site, possibly to complement the temple shrine. And 5th Dynasty rulers, such as Neusere, had made votive deposits at the temple, signalling a degree of royal interest in the area. Now, Satet, or more accurately pronounced Sechit, 
was a goddess of the south. She wore the white crown of Upper Egypt, and was associated intimately with the antelope that grazed near the river. As defender of Egypt's southern boundary, Satet was also a war goddess, whose speed made her a natural to defend against tribal raids from Nubia. But before you think of her as a deity only concerned with hunting animals and Nubians, Satet was also linked inextricably with the Nile flood. You see, as the Nile began to rise in deep Nubia, Elephantine was the natural point from which Egyptians could determine the beginning of the inundation season. As a small island, Elephantine was in a perfect location for observing and measuring the flood as it began. Messengers could then board their boats and use the rising waters to speed them northwards, bringing the good word to the rest of Egypt. Satet, or Sechit, instigated the inundation within Egypt by pouring additional water into the Nile. In this capacity, she eventually became identified as the wife of Khnum. Khnum, you may remember, was the ancient designer of human beings. He fashioned them from Nile mud, and in pharaonic times was believed to live in southern Nubia, where he oversaw the Nile's origin and its flooding. Sinusaret's decision to embellish the temple of Satet at Elephantine was a sensible one. Having led campaigns into Nubia in the ninth year of his co-regency with Amenemhat I, Sinusaret needed to ensure the protection and sanctity of his southern borders. This was already partially achieved, thanks to the string of border fortresses currently under construction in Lower Nubia. But walls are not guarded by men alone, and gaining the favour of the goddess was extremely important. This is why Senusaret decided to not only embellish the older temple of Satet, but to completely rebuild it. He replaced the mud-brick structure that had existed since the Old Kingdom with a new building of limestone. Now this was more difficult than it sounds, since it required quarrying stone and shipping it to the island, where it would be laboriously hauled up to the plateau. Having visited Elephantine myself, I can tell you that the land is rocky, steep, and not particularly suitable for large construction projects. Getting the stones up there was a monumental task in every sense of the word, and my heart goes out to the poor souls tasked with the job. So, with the Satet temple securing Egypt's spiritual boundaries, and the Karnak temples enriching the city of Thebes as a major community of Upper Egypt, Senusaret could now turn his attention northward. The most significant temple construction in Lower Egypt during this period occurred at Heliopolis, the ancient city of Rei that had been one of the primary cult centres of the Old Kingdom. At least, we assume it was. Not a lot is known about Old Kingdom Heliopolis, because the temples from that period have disappeared almost without trace. We do know that a structure was erected by Netjeriket Djosa, but beyond that we know almost nothing. Senusaret I is the earliest king to have left a significant and surviving monumental presence at the site. He erected a pair of obelisks 
flanking the entrance to a temple of Rei Atum. Only one of these stands in place today. It is 20 meters tall and made of red granite. In terms of sheer size, it's not the largest in Egypt. That honor goes to a mammoth 42 meter obelisk that was commissioned by Hatshepsut. That obelisk never made it out of the quarry, but it is still technically the largest ever commissioned. Senusaret's obelisk is remarkable for its beauty and its preservation. The bottom of the monument is badly eroded, but the top remains pristine and beautiful. Its hieroglyphs are gorgeous. The temples which these obelisks flanked has disappeared, along with most of the cult centers that existed at this site. Heliopolis is, unfortunately, too close to the city of Cairo to have survived in any monumental form. Unlike Karnak, which is in the middle of a second-tier city, Luxor, the city of Cairo has grown so rapidly since its foundation in 969 CE that it has swallowed up most of the ancient settlements and buildings. Still, the obelisk itself is impressive, and hopefully will stand for many years as a last testament to the ancient splendor of Heliopolis. Moving now to the king's final significant monument, we return to the area of Al-Lisht. Having finished Amenemhat's pyramid, Senusaret began construction of his own tomb about seven months after his father's death. Just a mile away from the earlier monument, the tomb of Senusaret would also be a pyramid, but it would be a pyramid not quite like any before it. The outside remained a smooth sloping structure, but the core construction of this pyramid was redesigned to increase its strength and stability. At the centre of the pyramid, the masonry was a mixture of limestone, loose debris and mud bricks, arranged into 16 cells packed tightly together. Around these cells, huge blocks of limestone were placed to fortify the core and to strengthen it. Then, an external casing of finer quality limestone was put in place to finish the outside. The reason this is so unusual is that it disregarded the Old Kingdom practices that had worked so well for the Giza and Abu Sir pyramids. The older monuments had been regular courses of limestone blocks, arranged into step pyramids, which were then finished with limestone casing. But Senusaret avoided this costly and time-consuming form of construction, allowing for a more innovative structure. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. The pyramid is now a mound of rubble, like that of a Menemhat. And unlike most pyramids, it required exploration to actually be, quote-unquote, discovered by the Egyptologist Gaston Maspero. If there is a common refrain to Senusaret's building program, it is the fact that most of it is now lost or destroyed. Out of four major building projects initiated up and down the Nile Valley, only the White Chapel survives intact. The others, including the myriad smaller projects at sites like Abydos, survive only in fragments or ruins. Some of them, like the Amun Temple at Karnak, or the Satet Temple at Elephantine, are entirely gone, 
leaving only small traces in the archaeological record. But this should not deter you from remembering Senusaret as one of the most successful builders of his age. Easily the most significant patron of building projects since the Old Kingdom, Senusaret I really does deserve his place in the annals of Egyptian rulers for this alone. But we're not done with the king yet, even after three episodes. There is more to tell and more to explore. Next time, Senusaret takes to the battlefield once more, driving southward against the Nubians to expand his conquests and continue the establishment of the Egyptian Empire. As a result, the royal court expands its power throughout the country, and the king's governors take note. Power must be obeyed, and loyalty must be given. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.